this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Prescore. What on earth is a Prescore? Pre stands for personal readiness to exit your company. And here we're looking to evaluate how personally ready you are to leave your company. You know, when you go to sell a business to have a successful exit and look back on it without regret, you need two things. Number one, a company that is attractive to an acquirer, to a company that's built to sell. And number two, you personally need to be ready to exit that business. We found that there are four drivers of a happy and lucrative exit, four ways you can personally ready yourself to exit your business. And by completing your pre-score, you are going to see how you're performing against those four major drivers of a happy and lucrative exit. Just go to prescore.com. You know, as you spend time at home in these days, You're probably starting to think about restructuring your company. What needs to stay? What needs to go? How can you operate in this new world? And my next guest, Artur Sulman, made some really tough decisions in his company very early on, deciding to focus on doing just one thing. Focus does a few things. It narrows the cash that you need for your company because you're doing one thing, not expending your resources on a bunch of ancillary things. Number two, it makes you much more referenceable. People refer you when you can say that you do one thing better than anybody else. And it allows you to quickly jettison conversations with customers that don't meet your absolute criteria for an ideal customer. It worked for Suleiman, it can work for you in these times. Here to tell you his story, is Artur Sulman. Artur Sulman, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Uh, thanks, John. How are you doing? It's great to, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So tell me about this company, Flux7. What, uh, what did you guys do? So we were uh, focused on helping enterprises innovate faster uh, with specific focus on helping their IT departments get more productive and be able to innovate and focus more on uh, changing the business. As we know, we the world okay, dumb that down for me. Dumb that down for me to something really basic. So, what did you guys? What? How did that look uh, in practical terms? What were you doing? So, um, in fact, I think I'll answer it from a broader perspective and then get into a little more specific. So the the. Yeah. There's a lot of change going on in the world of business right now where a lot of businesses that were traditionally physical businesses, if you will, are now moving on to the internet and uh, taking advantage of the digital technologies. We were coming in Mm -hmm. uh, into companies, uh, often working with large large businesses, uh, the likes of Fortune 100s and Fortune 500s, uh, and coming in and uh, helping them with their technology needs as they made that transition from being a traditional business to a more digital modern business. And, uh, right. So yes, you're helping people with their, their IT. So big, I mean, like there's tons of, you know, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but big, you know, big brands, Nike, uh, Abercrombie, these are all brands that are moving, you know, from the retail context into an online 
world, their, their percentage of sales online versus in retail stores, for example, are, are, are growing pretty significantly. Um, so you would help companies with this. Um, tell, me, tell me about the, so, so you start off with a fairly broad range of IT services, right? At some point, you got a bit more specific. Tell me about your, the focusing that you did. Yeah, so when we uh, started the company, if I may start with the story, if you will, uh, we, I al- always like to joke that we, we were two guys on a laptop when we started. Uh, <laughs> we were a startup uh, in my garage uh, in 2013. Uh, so between me and my co-founder, initially, uh, I think there was some really interesting advice and learnings that we had. So when we were starting out the company, the very first thought was to go the more traditional route, which is maybe go out, raise some investment, uh, possibly try to build a product, which is very common in my field of IT and software, which is how most startups uh, begin. However, we got some really timely and interesting advice from uh, uh, one of our uh, uh, acquaintances, I should say, Professor Sanjay Patel. Uh, he's at UIUC and has uh, built a couple of companies of his own. So Sanjay uh, gave us some really interesting advice that when, uh, if, if we do not have a precise problem that we want to go out and solve, it's a futile effort to say go on the whiteboard and try to come up with an idea. I think, frankly, and that's if I may share an advice, I feel a lot of uh, entrepreneurs think that it's the idea that's where the, uh, the company lies, and that's really not the case in my experience. I think idea is the, the, the core idea of the company is something you continue to shape over time. It's more the, uh, and it's the ability to learn uh, and quickly pivot to what the market is looking for is what matters at the end. So his advice was, but rather than spending hours and hours on the whiteboard trying to hone in on idea, how about you just put yourself out there and start as a consulting business and uh, start, uh, you guys have some technical skills. Like I said, two guys on a laptop, two strong engineers. Can you guys go out there and start helping companies with what they're looking for? Uh, So that's how we actually started. Naturally, uh, with that kind of a start, the focus was really broad. Uh, It was almost like uh, we had a smart guys for hire kind of a banner. And uh, we did startup projects with all the way from helping people build software for solar panels to uh, websites, as you mentioned. Uh, But the interesting part was that uh, we started realizing pretty early in the journey that if you actually want to scale a business, if you actually want to build it to sell, use the name of your book here, you actually have to focus uh, on a specific area. It's the the common uh, phrase that you would hear in the Silicon Valley, that you are more likely to drown in the abundance of opportunity than to starve due to lack of opportunity. So we were starting to drown in the abundance of opportunity. Though Every project was different. Every conversation that we were having was different. And that was not making it easy for us to scale and go deep into one thing and make a name for ourselves. Uh, a lot of references came in handy, and in fact, if I may do a shout out, actually, Built to Sell was one of the books that a friend of mine recommended to me in those early days uh, of nice. our company. And uh, one of my favorite books to date, actually, uh, I read the book. We actually used the the process. Uh, so in about twenty, so company started in twenty thirteen. In around twenty fourteen. Uh, we started making this realization that we're going to have to narrow it down. We just can't say yes to everything. Very, very important, if I may point out another advice here. 
uh, yeah, your uh, strategy is uh, strategy is to know when to say no. In fact, strategy is about hmm. what to say no to, not about what you say yes to. You can say yes to everything. That's not strategy. Strategy is. So, what did you start? What did you start to focus in on? What was the the thing that you decided to focus on? So uh, we actually. Did it, made a couple of decisions. I think the first one was we decided to choose a technology platform, uh, and we decided that we would focus on Amazon Web Services or AWS in the in the cloud technology. Uh, what that meant was making some hard decisions, saying no to anyone who was not wanting to go into the cloud. Uh, uh, the other decision that we made was we sharpened our focus away from uh, application development, so just just writing like. In the past, we have written mobile applications. Somebody would come to us and say, hey, can you write an iPhone app for us? Or can you create a website for us? We went away from that and we said, we fo solely focus on a problem where I have a business, I have a business problem where I have maybe some code or some application or a website that has been developed for me, or I have developed myself. How do I make this more applicable to the modern world, taking advantage of the cloud technology, which is where AWS was a leader at the time. Uh, I think another thing that's always important is, again, goes back to my point about strategy, is you have to have some beliefs about the world and the market. I think that's really critical. And that's what helped us sharpen the focus. Our belief was that the world is going to change in this direction where, uh, well, one, IT and digital is going to be super important. The second belief was that all businesses are going to have some brush of digital going into the future. No matter, uh, basically, as they often say, you're, everybody's in the technology business. You may not know it, but everybody today is in the technology business. So that was one of our beliefs. And the third belief we carried was that human creativity is best spent on creative tasks rather than people doing mundane tasks across the business, across the IT. So our focus was automation, take advantage of the cloud, take advantage of technologies that exist rather than rebuilding stuff from, from scratch. And that's what I became. So you guys started to focus on, instead of being kind of everything to everybody, you started to focus on being uh, an AWS partner in essence. Is that, is that right? And what was the, I think a lot of people are to, you know, have heard that advice before that they've got to focus and jettison some of the things that they do to get really clear. I love your, your term drowning in, uh, in, in abundance. Um, what was the toughest part about saying no to people that were asking you to do things that were not in your focus? Well, uh, it's hard to say no to revenue. Frankly, when you're a small business owner with a few employees, people that you have to pay and you have to put food on your own table, uh, it is always hard to say no. It, it, it takes a certain amount of uh, restraint and discipline to be able to uh, say no and continue to focus on the goal. So I think that's by far the hardest part, which is how do you balance the finances? Uh, we were a bootstrap company, so uh, just... How, how did you balance the finances? So we actually, uh, uh, in fact, this is more than half a joke, but it's actually very real. We, I, I came up with this term that we used to call the desperation index at Flux 7. Uh, the desperation index was that, yeah, there are times when we would be in desperate need of customers and in desperate need of revenue. But when the desperate, at that point, the desperate, desperation index would be higher, and that would mean that we would actually 
open up our qualifying criteria a little more to take in projects that we may not take in a time when the desperation index is low. So uh, literally, there was our strategy was to A, being very aware of, frankly, what the desperation index was at a given point in time, and uh, then B, being able to use that in our sales process in a very dynamic manner uh, so that we are, we, so I, I can, uh, I wish I could say this, but I, it'll be a lie if I told you that once we made the decision that we we're going to focus on this one thing, we just did 100% of that thing. That was not true. But that constant focus uh, enabled us to get to it, say that 80, 90% of our revenue, close to 95%, for example, last year, uh, actually came from the specific focus of uh, areas that we had. I think one, one advice was also to kind of write down that focus area. And I, and I really mean like the words right down there, which is going through the effort of writing down what, what your focus and your customer qualifying criteria is. It's okay to budge from it. That's not a problem if somebody comes to you. I think it's a mistake that frankly I made a, for many years, to be honest, and is really uh, have lesson learned the hard way, I should say, is that, uh, that uh, writing down and specifying this is what our focus is going to be does not mean uh, that you have to say no to everything else. You can still be a bit dynamic about it, but the difference is it's how you go to market. It's how you introduce yourself that should focus on your area. So like, uh, and uh, like, for example, of just being very concrete, when we said we're not going to do anything, we are going to focus on Amazon Web Services, uh, just creating a hypothetical scenario over here. If a customer came to us and was actually wanting to use, say, the Microsoft Cloud, which is a competing product, uh, would we have not even talked to them? Uh, no, we would have had that conversation, just try to understand what they're looking for. And in fact, uh, we did have a few of those scenarios where the customers ended up changing minds and after talking to us, decided to go to, go to AWS. So you do, you do want to entertain that conversation. But the, the thing is that we, if you went to our website, there was no mention of us being able to do Microsoft. It was all about how you go to market. That was all about AWS, our partnership, our focus. I think it's a big difference between uh, uh, Gartner actually does a really good job, in my opinion. They actually call it two different uh, personas, if you will. One customer profile is this is my ideal customer, and then there is a profile called acceptable customer. That to me is one of the cleanest frameworks I've seen. Just have them both written out. What's your ideal and what's your acceptable? And then uh, if you can remember the desperation index concept for me, the, the acceptable <laughs> definition can shift a little depending on how desperate you are for revenue at a given point in time. <laughs> and did, did you actually publish the desperation index? Was it, was it a number that you said, like we're at seven or DEFCON nine? Like, did you actually use a number or was it sort of more tongue in cheek? We did not have a, a formal number that we published, but it was a, uh, we actually had a, another thing that we created within the company was this concept of a fixed score. So we would actually rank a customer deal that would come in to, to see what the fit score was, and there were certain criteria that went into it on a scale of one to ten. So, on a low desperation time, the we would want a fit to be eight or nine before we would actually take the project. And on a high desperation time, we would go to lower the threshold down to five or six. So it was a little bit quantitative, but not not purely science. Arthur, you know, you're being very modest. You, you couple guys on a laptop. You built the company to 70 employees in the space of seven years. So this is a, this is a juggernaut company. This was a, a rocket ship. Tell me, I mean, I want to get to, so you focus in on AWS. Um, you know, 
explain, help, help people understand who are maybe sitting on, a, on the fence saying, oh, I don't know if I should focus. I don't want to say no to stuff right now. I want to be sort of customer centric and broad. Tell, tell me about what impact focusing on AWS, focusing your go-to-market strategy, like what impact did that have on your company in, in the ensuing years? I, I, I think there's two areas. Uh, and if I may start with the first piece, which is really important, I think it's a, it's a misconception that customers want to work with vendors who can just adapt to their needs for everything. In my opinion, that's a strong misconception. Uh, I think customers prefer vendors who have an opinion, who come in with an opinion and say, this is what you should be doing and this is what we think you should be doing. Uh, so that's the, uh, so it actually increases your uh, close rate, if you will. When, uh, if I have 100 conversations and I go in opinionated, uh, it's a bit counterintuitive, but I actually have, uh, there's a lot of data out there that shows that you actually close more business if you go out opinionated. The other piece of it is, so that's the first part, you close more. The other thing is by being able to say no to customers faster or frankly, just giving them the data and if they decide not to work with you, then it frees up time because time is your most important uh, asset as an entrepreneur. It frees up time so you can then have more conversations than, than before. So if you're, say, closing one out of every five conversations, but now you can have twice the number of conversations, you just doubled your business right there, basically, because you did not waste time having conversations that don't lead to anything. So, uh, so that's, that's something that we actually saw uh, in our business. The second area was, it, in, it allows you to be really good at something, and it's really important to be uh, the, best in, uh, the best in something, in my opinion. The, at Flex7, one of the taglines I always have is that uh, we want to be the best in the world at one thing rather be, than be mediocre at a lot of things. And that one thing we chose to be was being able to help companies adopt Amazon Web Services. And we had a relentless focus on trying to be the best in the world at that, that had impact on uh, how we went to market, our deep partnership with AWS that we were able to build. They have a strong partnership program. We were able to climb through the ranks to get to a premier partner tier. When we made it to that level, we were one of the smallest and the youngest company to have made the premier tier. We were, in the, we were sitting with the likes of Accenture's and uh, of the world. And then, uh, and that actually then led to more business as well because when, you, when you're really good at that one thing, People go on the internet or people go talk to AWS and say, who's the partner we should talk to? They would send them to us. So that actually led to a lot of growth and business growth. That's how it basically fueled, like I said, it's a little counterintuitive, but saying no fueled the acceleration of the company. Yeah, it's not counterintuitive at all. I, lo- I, you know, I love the example and, and, and I think it, I just applaud you for having the discipline to do it. Uh, and there is sort of this snowball effect, right? Where, where you, the more focused you are, the faster you say no, the, the more you become known for something, the more people want to do business with you. Uh, even, even having an opinion, I think those are all amazing um, lessons for sure. Were you were you worried at all as the business grew? Again, 70 employees, a lot of mouths to feed. Were you worried at all about your dependence on Amazon as a company? Did you, did you have conversations about, well, what if Amazon changes strategy and doesn't go to market through partners anymore? What if Amazon changes their pricing model? Or what if Amazon, you know, gets hacked and, and you know, all that? Like, did you have those sort of, you know, conversations internally? 
Absolutely. Uh, it's very, very natural. It's very healthy and extremely important, in my opinion, to be having those conversations. Uh, if you go back and uh, uh, kind of look at our, uh, we used to ha uh, have these quarterly company meetings. And uh, I, I do often go back and just look at all the decks that I created from all those years and the questions I got uh, just, just down the memory lane from time to time to go back and learn from our own history. And that was a question that came up almost every single meeting, which is, are we going to stay exclusive to Amazon or are we going to expand out? And my answer was always the one same thing, which is there's still opportunity in this area. We have uh, built a name for ourselves. Uh, this is the, if we, there's no need to get out of here yet. Uh, this was not something we are married to. We would uh, end up. Towards the uh, later half of 2019, we actually did start to make some investments into other providers. Uh, just We were always doing this risk cost-benefit analysis, if you will. And at one point, it looked like we had grown to a point where we could actually be, make a meaningful contribution to a second ecosystem. And I think it's, that's the other part, which is it's always about for, can you make a meaningful contribution? If, when we were 20 people or when we were 50 people, the only reason we were able to get to that top tier status with Amazon was because of our focus, because we were just trying to focus on that one thing and that enabled us to get there. When you go to a certain point, then you have the opportunity to fan out, why not, and then look at uh, broader areas. But uh, it's, uh, if I remember correctly, I think it's uh, called the bowling alley strategy. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, the, which is uh, the, the way the strategy talks about it is that you want to be the gorilla in one area because I think that if I remember, and this is from a book I read five years ago, so my apologies to the author, others who may be able to correct me here, but basically the, the bowling alley strategy, the focus is, is that you actually want to find that one bowling alley that you are the best at, that you are going to be the best in. Once you have conquered that bowling alley, then you can look at the adjacent alleys. So that's, that's, the, that's, that's really critical to me. So, so yeah, so focus doesn't mean a perpetual focus. In fact, focus doesn't mean at all getting religiously marriage to something. I think it's about constantly be doing that analysis on what your focus needs to be and if you need to broaden it or if you need to sharpen it. But uh, not having a focus is the, what's most dangerous. It's, uh, the image of your story, Artur, the image that's coming to mind for me is an hourglass. So when it's two guys on a laptop, you're very wide at the top, right? I'll take any project, just give me some money and we'll, we'll make it happen, right? <laughs> but then you get very, very narrow, That is um, very narrow for the next seven years. We're the best at AWS implementation. We're the world's leader. We're, we're premier partner. And then as 2019 progresses, the aperture starts to widen again, like the bottom of an hourglass. It starts to widen again. There's a second lane you guys start to get into. I think so many business owners start uh, at the very top and they get really wide and, and, and never go through the, 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 the funneling process, the, the narrowing process. And, um, and that can be, a, I, I just, I don't know if you have a reaction to that as an image, but for me, it's what you're describing. Is That's, actually very accurate. That's very accurate. In fact, uh, uh, to your uh, point, John, the, at the, using the hourglass analogy, I think there's actually something really interesting I want to share with the, audience. Uh, so uh, when we were actually sharpening our focus in 2014, I didn't get to give, um, and I hope I, I get to embarrass you over here by giving you guys a lot of credit for the, the build to sell framework. Uh, when we were actually sharpening our focus uh, in 2014, we actually went, I literally took the book 
uh, the, the built-to-sell story. And you know how I talks about like when the, and uh, again, a few years old, so my, and my memory is not good with names, but I remember the story pretty well. When the main uh, uh, character decides that he needs to sell his company, and one of the advice he gets is that they need to take what they do and turn it into a process, a five-step process. It was since it was in graphics design, there was like about collecting requirements, proofreading, et cetera. We actually went mm -hmm. and sharpened the, in around 2015 timeframe. So I think timelines are really interesting. 2013, the hourglass starts. 2014, it's sharpened down to AWS. 2015, we sharpened it down to the point that we actually had a five-step process. People would come to us and we literally had a slide saying, we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, then we're going to do this. And here's a pricing sheet. You have an application that you want to put in the cloud. If the application has three components, it's going to cost you $15,000. If it's four components, it's going to be $20,000. It was literally a spreadsheet of pricing and a, and a five-step process. And that's actually what then allowed us to, to my point earlier about kind of become the best in the world or that earn the reputation of being best in the world at that one thing. That's actually what got us that acceleration really quickly. Also enabled us to scale, getting a lot of customer, picking up a lot of customers' logos at a very quick rate, because when people were looking for exactly that, uh, there was a, it, it kind of in the middle of the business. We were, at that point, we were mostly working with small to medium businesses as our customers who had very similar repetitive needs. This was not a high margin business, which is why it wasn't sustainable to build a 70% org off of that. But for a 15, 20% org, it was great because we had the process laid out, the pricing was on the website. Basically, nobody else was doing that in the consulting world when we were doing it. And that gave us a strong differentiator and we were able to move really fast because of the five-star process and even optimize and tune the process. We built internal tools once we had broken it down into the five-star process. Then over time, uh, to your point, the hourglass started to widen again. When, we, when our reputation grew to a point in 2017 timeframe that Basically, these big companies started to reach out to us. We would like just open my email, and these are true stories. And I would have an email from like an IT director of a Fortune 100 company and say, "Hey, we, we have heard a lot about you guys. We want to talk work with you." Now, at that point, these enterprise customers do expect more flexibility. The five-step process was not going to work there, so we had to widen the hourglass again. But I, but I think your analogy was really good, and I think that. That five-step process, even though we don't have that anymore today and for, because of, we widened the focus, if you were to ask me and say, what would I go back and change? Because there's always something. And that would be one of those things. I wish we had stuck with it a bit longer. I think we actually widened a bit too fast. I think we could have, any, we could have built a stronger business if we had stayed a bit more on course. We had a, so, but, but, but I think that, that's really critical. And the, the process is, is really like... Uh, like I said, I'm sorry, John, for embarrassing you here, but I think it's that process that laid out in the book. I think it's great, actually. It's from that standpoint. We literally followed it to the letter to build that process. With well, the, I'm thrilled to hear it worked. So that's great. I love that. Um, so you, you, you really document your process. Uh, for folks who haven't gone through that pro that the, the documentation uh, piece of it, help help us understand what impact that had on customer confidence at the time you were working a lot with small medium-sized businesses when you fire up the the, the powerpoint with the five-step process what, did, did you see any difference between sort of how customers reacted before you had the process and, and how they reacted when you were able to show them the process absolutely uh, i think that's 
it made a really big difference that we, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll just give you a quote from one of my customers when asked for a reference by another customer. He basically just told them one sentence. He said, these guys have it down to a science. And uh, the, the, this act of like going to the cloud, which is considered to be a very complex thing, having it down to a science and being able to break it down into five steps uh, was very impactful. There were many customers when we were, like I said, when, we, when these enterprises started talking to us, uh, it was actually a pretty strong differentiator that we had an opinion. And like I said, I wish I could be that focused again, because from a sales perspective, that was like a dream come true. You would just, we would just, frankly, I would just get on a sales call and uh, we would just win the business. Like basically getting, getting on a sales call was the hard part. Once you got on the call, we knew we would win the, pretty much every, every call we were getting in, we were winning the business. Fantastic. Um, how did you finance your growth? It's you and your partner. Were you guys equal partners in the beginning? Yes, uh, we were. We have. Uh, uh, we started out as equal uh, partners, and we actually, but slightly against the conventional wisdom, we actually did not do like a fifty-one forty-nine. We actually did a fifty-fifty uh, between the two of us. There was a a lot of mutual uh, respect and friendship there. Ali and I had known each other since college for so about ten years before Flux Seven started. And uh, that, that mutual trust, I think, went a long way. We did discuss the possibility of doing an uneven split, but then it, we felt it would be uh, more motivating for both of us to stay equally engaged with equal skin in the game. We funded the business completely, bootstrapped it up in the beginning. So yeah, while we did not have, uh, we don't have much, many Raymond Noodle stories to share here, but we do have uh, the stories of time. In fact, they were, there were months when we had to just defer taking a paycheck and these were watered down salaries. So this was a, we were just not taking very watered down paychecks, even sometimes deferring them for months uh, to let the bank account fill up before we can actually cash the checks. But uh, so yes, yeah, so it started out, I can say from sweat equity, probably the right word in the beginning. Uh, we grew the business from that until in 2018 when we saw an, uh, we saw an opportunity to just grow the business and uh, even faster. And we were coming to a point where we had to make some big strides. One of them was, say, building a sales team for real. So that's when we actually raised some capital, uh, angel investors, friends of friends. And Again, that, that then further fueled the growth, the last step of that uh, journey before we got acquired the last year or so was actually then fueled through the, the funding that we had actually raised that enabled us to hire sales team and just accelerate the hiring faster. What valuation uh, model did you use to value the business in 2018? Was it kind of a multiple of revenue or EBITDA or how did you, how did you value the company? <clears throat> multiple of revenue. Uh, that was uh, very common. I mean, I, it's it's always a challenge to decide what that method is going to be. What, what we were doing was uh, uh, just keeping an eyes and ears open, I think, made a pretty big difference. Just knowing our peers, other entrepreneurs in our field, uh, when we were hearing about somebody else raising money, uh, just making sure we frankly reach out to them and just figure out how they, what they did, even if they, were, we, they could not share specifics. So we had been prepping prepping that mentally for a while, we kind of knew what the running multiples were, what the typical methodology was. So when the time came for us to do a raise, uh, valuation was actually one of the least sticky points in the conversation. What were, you, what were you seeing in the marketplace in terms of range of multiple of revenue for a business like yours? Like what, what were you starting to kind of see as a, as a fair multiple of revenue? 
So uh, in 2018, that number, the, the, the multiple changes over time, that depends on how niche the business is and what, who else is in the market and just how the, how the ecosystem is doing. But in, the, in our ecosystem, it was about three times revenue. Uh, most mm-hmm. with ranges going all the way down from two to four point five, but three was pretty much the average. And which is and what proportion at the time of your revenue in two thousand eighteen was recurring? Uh, we actually had very little recurring revenue in twenty eighteen. Most of our revenue was actually project by project. It was a uh, uh, it was recurring of a non. Uh, I guess there's a. There's a colleague of mine who says that there's a third kind of revenue which is often not talked about, and that is uh, uh, non-recurring but tends to recur. So we had the revenue, we had that <laughs> revenue, <laughs> which is that it would be customer yeah. would be signing short, short contracts, but they would just keep renewing it over and over again. So it was recurring. It was non-recurring, but it continued to recur. Yeah, we we call that the difference between reoccurring and recurring recurring being subscription revenue, which is automatic and reoccurring like a rash, which happens on uh, a, a, an unpredictable, but very common basis. <laughs> exactly right. that, that's, we would, so it sounds like you had reoccurring revenue. Yeah. And, and, and it, this might be a very personal choice, but like I have sat on the other side of the table with consulting companies in my past life. And I had always frankly been a little, uh, for the lack of a better word, a bit, uh, frustrated at like the push for these really big contracts and uh, really lengthy uh, contracts. So we, we actually built the business kind of from that insight that uh, we would rather, uh, in fact, one of the catchphrases I often used was that we want our customers to call us because they want to call us, not because they have to call us. They have to. Yeah. yeah. So, so we didn't yeah. we don't want to put any, even when we, we did have long contracts, we would have an exit clause in the middle. If we are not adding value, just let us know. We'll, we'll leave. You don't have to keep paying us. Uh, which I think was actually, in a sense, really good because it actually kept our company, it frankly kept us on, under a leash all the time. And that was good because it forced us to deliver quality work. If you want an extension of the contract that's coming up next month, you have to make sure the customer is super happy. Otherwise, you're not going to get an extension. Arturo, who is your partner in the business? I, forgive me, I've forgotten his name. You said it earlier. Uh, Ali Hussein. Ali, were you and tell me about the dynamic between you and Ali leading into the 2018 finance raise? Um, were you both on the same page about the need to raise money? Were, was one sort of more uh, bullish than the other? Uh, yes. Uh, frankly, if I may brag about something over here a little bit, is that I, I think that's actually one of those things that really made an impact in Flux Seven was. Uh, how uh, much respect Ali and I carry for each other. I think it's been phenomenal, frankly. I could not have asked for a better relationship. Uh, and I'm not just saying this to make Ali feel better or anything. I know he'll be listening. What's the secret to your relationship? Like, break it down for me. Why does it work? Uh, one, that long relationship, I think, that we got into the, uh, the business, the 10 years of knowing each other. Uh, the second was, uh, I think there was a lot of, values we don't agree on everything in fact there's a lot of things we don't agree on but the difference was that there was a lot of there was a there's value system if you will that we believed in both of us believed in for example we would both put our integrity ahead of money any day we both strongly believed in that 
uh, we would we both are just not the kind of people in any business dealing or personal dealing. We just don't nickel and dime, and I think that made a pretty big difference when we were making those decisions. May not be the wisest decision, but it never led to uh, us uh, parting ways, if you will, because that's where uh, a lot of those differences occur. I think there was a lot of clarity in what areas we were gonna we were each gonna focus on. Uh, Ali took more of the, even though we both came from an engineering background, Ali took more of the, the technical leadership and I took more of the, the sales and the business side of the, uh, the focus. And we never really, right. like, like I said, we never really sat down and frankly nickel and dime each other on, you did this and I did that, or we both were working as a team, kind of taking that collective approach, helping each other out as needed. And I think one of the best things that came from that is, frankly, I see a lot of that in all of my team today, where any new new hires that we bring into the company, one of the first compliments that pretty much everyone gives is, wow, everyone's just so helpful over here. Nobody cares about what their job, what's their job and what's not their job. Everyone just steps up and helps. So I think that, that made a very big difference. So coming back from that to your question about 2018, so frankly, in a way, it was a very simple. We were really both on the same page. The only uh, disagreements, if you will, uh, that, like I said, on the value and belief, we were both on the same page. We had disagreements on how the contract needs to be written. What are we going to fight on and what are we not going to fight on? And the mutual respect allows us to have those heated, heated discussions and come out of them without having lost any of our uh, personal capital if you will, with each other. Fantastic. You mentioned that valuation was one of the least contentious issues in 2018 when you raised money. What were the more contentious or, or more difficult things that you had to work through in? in that capital raise? So I think we, uh, it's frankly, it's the legal stuff that we were not aware of even existed. It's things like, like, what? like, for example, different classes of stock. I did not realize that that was even a thing until we got to the, uh, that phase of the company. What, what stock were you, did, were you asked to take? The investor? And uh, we thought everyone was just going to be with like the same, same common stock until we learned about preferred stock. Although eventually we ended up settling that we will all do common stock, but I thought that was an important learning. Uh, for us. So the investor, let me just be clear, Arthur, the investor wanted preferred shares and for you to keep common stock, is that, is that right? That is correct, yes. That's a very typical model. And, and what is, so for folks who don't, have never gone through this process, explain to me what preferred shares are and, and what rights they have versus common. So to me, and I'm, I'm no expert, in this at all, but uh, to me, uh, the biggest difference was that it's the um, it's the waterfall of how. So one of the things I learned in the exit, and if I may jump to the the exit, because mm-hmm. it taught me a lot about the business and a lot of things I could have done uh, learned earlier. I wish I known I had known earlier. One of those was how uh, when you make an exit, it's not a simple like I'm going to agree on a. $1 million valuation and then $1 million is what I'm going to get. That's just not how the world operates. It's a far more complex process. They actually call it a waterfall where you, you agree on the, the valuation of the business, but then you agree on the transactional expenses and then the transaction expenses, what's in and what's out. One of the most complex things that come about, uh, came about the acquisition to me, frankly, to caught me by a complete surprise was this idea of like, it's like, changing drivers on a running train when, you, when you're going through an acquisition. So what that basically means is, like, just keep that analogy in mind. You're changing drivers on a, while we are driving on a highway 100 miles an hour. How are you going to do that successfully without disrupting the current flow of the business? Uh, how are you going to decide what does valuation even mean? Because uh, on a day where 
I like if I'm scheduled, we were scheduled to close the night of December 30th uh, at 11.59 p.m. There's going to be transactions flying around on both sides of that, right? Some customer invoices are in flight. Other customers have, the work has been delivered but not invoiced yet. Other credit card transactions have been swiped but not yet billed. Who's going to take what transaction and how's all that going to work? So those are all things that uh, I learned. And now if I may kind of uh, go back to the, the legal stuff and the, the waterfall. So using that, uh, giving that parameter to answer the question about the waterfall, so one of those complexities that I learned about was that, yeah, money doesn't get distributed as we agree on a valuation of 1 million and you get 1 million and then you guys divide it amongst yourself. That's not how it works. It's a, it's a waterfall that actually gets created. Who is going to get the first right to money? Then who's going to get the second right to money? And the way it works is, is the first things that get paid off are the liabilities of the business. So maybe you agree on a $1 million valuation, but the business has a $100,000 loan. That, that's the first thing that's going to get paid off. Then the question is, who's, who gets paid off next? So who gets paid off next is typically your preferred stock is the one that gets paid off first, and then your common stock. Uh, so that, and, and it, while it may not matter, like who cares how the waterfall is, where it does matter is that on the preferred stock, and again, all of this is negotiable, but what I've seen commonly do people do is that on a preferred stock, one of the requirements is if the investors give you a million dollars, they will take out their one million first, regardless of how much the company sold for before the water falls to the next level and then gets divided into uh, at the next level amongst the common stockholders. So that's that's basically the area is that they will they'll take their money out first and then even on the preference there is like multiples that people will put some. Uh, if you watch Shark Tank, actually there is actually some really good <laughs> learning that you can have from that. And I actually did watch that show to learn some of these uh, economics and how it works. But the one. Uh, like you can actually put on your preferred stock, like say, well, if I'm putting in a million, I want two million back before you can take any money. Investors would do that kind of stuff. So that those, I think those were, I, I don't think any of it was for us. We were very lucky. Uh, I guess I've been very, very fortunate uh, in a lot of areas. And this was one of them that our investors were not too different from myself and Ali in our value belief system. So which made the process really easy. It was just a matter of, we both wanted what was fair and what was right. It was more just a matter of getting to, just getting pen on pen to paper. So one of those things that was discussed, discussed and totally caught me off guard because I had no idea about was this discussion. Eventually, it came out to be just the way we both wanted. But uh, I just I think it's an, it was just an interesting experience when we went through that. How did you get investors? to move off of their requirement for preferred shares? Like, how did you make that case that you should all be in the same boat with common shares? Uh, I, I think we, one of those things that we established was, and I always uh, uh, recommend this, I'm being a little philosophical, is that I, I, I've seen people get very contentious when it comes to negotiations. And if I may give a big, bigger advice, I've obviously negotiated over 400 contracts in the last five years, so I've gone a lot of first-hand experience. One of the things I've, I've noticed is that like, you always have to start with the belief that neither party is trying to screw the other party. It's really just a matter of everyone's trying to be fair. We're all trying to get to the right place. And then, and then start with first agreeing. Uh, there's actually uh, the, a framework around this. I think it's called The Difficult Conversations. Uh, uh, there's a nice book there as well. And uh, uh, it actually talks about that. Like, let's first agree on things that we all believe in before we start to talk about things that we all disagree. And one of those things we all believed in was we have to do what's right for the business. We have to prepare the business for a clean, simple exit. We don't want to 
pay a lot of money to our lawyers, frankly. We would rather do things that are simple. And we all trust each other. And we all agreed on those things very quickly. Once that was there, it was more a question of, well, will preferred stock help the business? Will preferred stock make it any uh, easier or harder for us to achieve our goal, which will be to eventually exit the business? And the answer was, well, preferred stock is great, but what it does is it misaligns mine and Ali's interest with the investor's interest. They would want something else for the business than we do. Misalignment's not, gonna, not the right thing for the business, and it's going to deter us all from achieving our goal. So, and that's basically the common rule that we use for every other decision we made. What's right, what's going to help us achieve our goal and what's going to deter us from the goal. And that's how we made work through this. It, it sounds like, Artur, that your, your goal from this business fairly early on was to build to sell. You read, you read the book. Uh, in the conversations you had with investors, it was clear that there was sort of a, an exit path in mind. What was it? Um, why, why was that your, your motivation? Um, what was it that you hoped to achieve through selling? So, uh, I think from, from me, it was, uh, we, we were really, Ali and I basically both started our career as entrepreneurs. That was what, what led us to start Flex7 in the first place was this, uh, entrepreneurial spirit. And as an entrepreneur, I feel like it's one of those things that you always aspire to is that you can build something of such high value that somebody else uh, want to pay for it, frankly. That's just really, uh, I think it's a really meaningful test of what you're actually building. That are you, are you able to build something that somebody else feels is of enough value that they would want to pay something for it? And that, that's really, uh, that was really one of our, as just a building an entrepreneurial career, that was just a very simple one way of uh, thinking about it. Uh, the uh, the other aspect of this was that uh, well we felt that folks that were uh, when we were on straw man salaries in the very early uh, part of the company like I said uh, we weren't we weren't alone some of our early employees were right there with us and uh, one of those things was that well eventually uh, folks who were right there with us helping us on low salaries and working extra hours how are we going to eventually make it up to them and this was one of those ways to to do that. So that was, that was kind of the original insight. Uh, let me actually jump seven years and talk about where we were and what uh, kind of to close the loop on the decision. So that was the vision. We had been pretty vocal about it all along. Pretty much all of our team, our team members, employees had all known that that would be the aspiration. One day, that's, that's how we were going to do this. But what kind of made us uh, decide towards the end was it was just finding the right partner. Like there would be, we were in a hot ecosystem. Uh, we would be having these conversations all the time, but what uh, really, uh, what really uh, kind of made it all work was that we uh, we, we started seeing uh, the 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 next level of growth for this opportunity, uh, the, the the next level for growth for the uh, to capture the opportunity that was in the market is going to require us uh, just to have a have a stronger backing, if you will. And, uh, and for that, so this decision was made actually in early 2018. I think there's a really interesting aspect to this. And in fact, your book talks about it, John, again, on Built to Sell. I still remember the story of how the entrepreneur then goes and talks about uh, the fact that he had made that decision to his employees. So I kind of took a different approach there, which is pretty much at the time I hired everyone, I let them know that this is how we're going to do it someday. So everyone was brought in with that understanding. Uh, we did set some time mi milestones for ourselves. Uh, we kind of said, well, first time we're going to 
play with the idea will be 2018. That'll be five years into the company. And uh, then if that doesn't make sense, then 2020 would be the next one. But sort of an ultimate deadline to ourselves was that around 20, by 2025, we would have had to make some kind of a decision. And that really helped. It kept us honest. So in 2018, rather than making an exit, we ended up raising some capital. Uh, in 20, come 2020, we ended up actually making the exit. So we kind of followed that schedule that we had built for ourselves. And, and in 2018, when the first, first time around we came about, one of the things I did was I actually put together sort of like a business case for my employees on why we would be thinking about either an acquisition or, or an investment. And uh, that was basically uh, something that I actually put together, like I would do for a board, if you will. And uh, we actually went ahead and uh, presented it. Uh, and I had something like 10 meetings. I broke my team down into groups of five, talked to every one of them, explained to them, uh, got, seek opinions. And one of the things I had them do was, I said, well, if we were to go down the acquisition route, what would be important to you? What would you look for in a partner? And uh, the team actually... Uh, cooperated. We actually jointly made a list of seven attributes that we would want to see in a in a partner, and then mm -hmm. conversations continued. And then we found we had a conversation with Entity, and it seemed it fit like the everything that they brought to the table. We hit all seven check boxes. So the decision was pretty. And good. Arthur, did, and, and Arthur, tell me about how the actual transaction itself with NTT. So, what triggered? the 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 conversation to begin with did you take the business to market hire a, an advisor and shop it or did they come to you what was the process there uh it was the the, the latter actually the conversation started with uh, them coming to us uh we but but uh if i if i may go back just a little uh, so in 2018 when we did make the decision that we would be going down this route uh, we did a few preparation stages and one of them was to choose an advisor and have them on uh, on i guess uh, under a contract if you will so if we need them they were retained basically if we needed them we could use them and we did consult with them uh, uh, briefly when we raised the investment even though we did not use their services for the investment but it was good to have somebody we could just call call a friend if you will and have a conversation mm -hmm. with them and uh, uh, and then come 2018 we would always be getting these outreaches. We actually decided to start to, so, so late 2019, uh, that we had multiple uh, suitors, if you will, that had uh, reached out to us. Uh, by the way, if I may say that, uh, a very small important tip, uh, LinkedIn is a very powerful tool in my opinion. That's actually where most of our in inbound came from. So Entity mm -hmm. had reached out to us via LinkedIn actually. And uh, the conversation started, and then we, uh, so, so I mean, it, it, I can't say it's just that they reached out to us. We had, like I said, we had the 2020 goal in mind. So they reached out to us. We already had this timeline in mind. A couple of other folks reached out to us. It was just a very nice alignment of time. But as we compared our choices, that seven-point checklist became our guide uh, on how we, whom we were going to go with. And uh, that's what made the decision really easy. And, and how many formal offers did you did you get did was it just the one from entity or, or or did you get other sort of formal letters of intent uh there, there were a few so so the exit process itself uh i guess uh, the one thing i've been told over and over again is there's no one standard process uh, but the process that we followed was kind of the more traditional two-step process so step one was uh, ask for indication of interest from everyone by sharing 
Uh, so actually, if I may break it really down, step one was uh, just did, did like a teaser on the business and we reached out to folks. Some of those folks had reached out to us. There were others that we also uh, reached out to. We did a one page teaser. The, the teaser then translated into uh, the uh, indication of an interest from the potential buyers, which narrowed us down to about half a dozen, uh, which then we said- How many, how many got the teaser? Oh boy, I don't have the exact number. It was, uh, I think it was in the teens, if you will. Uh, so kind of, let's say 20 down to six IOIs, a, a indication of interests. That's correct. And then of the six, how many converted into LOIs? Uh, the LOIs, then it, gave, it came down to uh, three that were actually at, in the mix at the very end of very last stage of the process. And, and, and of the three, you mentioned um, the fit with NTT. Just give me a sense, how broad a range was there in valuation? Were, were they all sort of triangulating around this three times revenue uh, number or were there, was there kind of wild you know, variances between the three? So uh, I'm under strict obligation to not talk about the number. The value, all I can say is the number wasn't a simple 3X. It was a bit more complex at the time of the exit. 3X was what we used when we did the uh, raise the money. But that said, without getting into any specifics on the multiple itself, uh, they, were, they were in the vicinity of each other, so no wild differences, roughly the same, uh, same ballpark. The deal structures were different, though. Some were uh, more favorable than the others in terms of uh, just cash versus equity balance, if you will, uh, on how they were, uh, what the, the structure of the deal was. Uh, one of the things that uh, frankly, and to my point earlier about like, I think your employees are your strongest assets. So one of the things that we absolutely looked for was that criteria checklist. And one of those things very high on that criteria list was employee retention team that had helped us get there. We didn't want that team to be uh, losing their jobs when we were all making a successful milestone. So that was very important to us that everyone in the staff was retained. And, uh, that, uh, and the deal structure in general uh, kind of being favorable to that and amenable to that. So that's actually one of those major things that stood out for us, for Entity, frankly. Fantastic. So employee retention key, the, the, again, those seven criteria. If we go back to the three offers, um, I think people would be, you know, I think that without having gone through an exit, sometimes business owners think, okay, it's going to be 100% cash at closing. Uh, what it, when you looked at the three offers, again, I know the NTT deal is, is highly confidential, but perhaps you could, you could share your, your perspective on what are the types of currencies or sort of structures that you, you think people should expect to see. So there's clearly a tranche of or an amount of cash that's usually paid at closing, I assume. What else should they expect and what sort of proportions would you kind of coach them to expect? Yeah, so uh, a, a very general rule of thumb that I got from somebody two years ago was a third, a third, a third which would be a third cash, a third paid in the form of equity, and a third paid in the form of earnout. I think that's a, that's a really simple, clean framework to do your planning around. Uh, the world reality doesn't look anything like that. Uh, from At least for us, it didn't. Uh, everything was, there was no, no clean, a third, a third, a third. But, and and the, the vary and the, the, the stipulations on the different thirds vary as well. Uh, but I think that's a, that was a guideline that actually helped me a lot in my planning exercises. That it, uh, that is a third, a third, a third, basically between. How, how did it? How did it? How did it help you in your planning? So uh, just 
uh, we would be we would be doing spreadsheets, kind of running numbers, trying to understand what uh, the, uh, the so. We we are, we, are, we have an understanding of our revenue. We have an understanding of where the market is headed in terms of revenue multiple. What does it actually translate into from a financial standpoint? Uh, how how that that helps the the decision that it helps us is: Do you want to keep going for another five years? Do you want to stop uh, right now? Is that the is this the right time to exit? It's actually one of those factors that I I think you should be considering uh, because uh, the the key is at the end you need to make sure that you hit the goals that you set for yourself. As, and this is actually one of those things that go into that equation. And like I said, the, the final deal will most likely be different, but it's at least something that you can actually use as a framework. I think it's a great, uh, a great framework. Did you have a, a number in mind? Was there a, for you, was there a, a, you know, some of us have a sort of a financial number that, you know, love, love to hit that. Did you have something in mind? Did you and Ali have, have a number? Uh, we did actually have a, a, a personal goal that we had, uh, Kind of created it for ourselves, and uh, and that's typically what we would be comparing against uh, from a maturity of the company uh, headed towards that goal. So yeah, I, I think it's a, among other things like uh, uh, I I think there was one of those things right like you you need to know what what you are trying to get at the end of the day. Your goal has to be there, and again, I think it's I highly recommend just to write it down. Write down what your goal is. It's it's a day and night difference between, I can say it, uh, because every time you say it, you say it's slightly different. That's just how our brain works. Uh, but if you write mm-hmm. it down, that's the goal. That becomes the goal. And then keep it there. And then the, the second part of it is just continue to change it. Just continue to evolve it. I can guarantee you it's not going to be the way you expect it to be. Eventually, I mean, our goal, what we ended up getting is different, very different. But uh, it really helped us, again, uh, having uh, 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 it's like one of those things, right? Like having a, having a plan is, a, uh, planning is essential. Uh, plans are worthless. So at the end of the day, the plans were worthless, but planning was essential. Having that framework that we were using to make sensible decisions to get there. Although eventually, like I said, it was very different from what we had expected. Uh, but it is, uh, I, I think that's really, really important to have a framework for, so that you can plan sensibly. Otherwise, you'll just be shooting in the dark. Were you able to, achieve the number that you wrote down the first, the first time? I guess the short answer would be no, a little short, uh, or actually short of that, I think is probably the right answer. And so what does that mean to you? Like how, how does that now a few months on sort of impact you? The, the fact that you fell short of the, the dream number that you wrote down the first time? Uh, I, I think it's that goes to my point about write it down, but then keep reevaluating and uh, be cognizant of what's going on around you. Uh, so mm-hmm. we never really we, we wrote it down, write it down, but don't don't marry it. If I may say that, I think that's really <laughs> critical. Not just about this, but everything else as well. Pragmatism still prevails. Common sense prevails. It's not what you wrote down six years ago. It's what the world looks like right now that the decision should be made on, and that's how we made our decisions. So frankly, I have, uh, so to answering your question, how it impacts me personally, uh, I'd say it's, uh, I feel very fulfilled, not, if, if not financially, but there's so much else that actually came with it. Uh, to be honest with you, if I may share something very personal, uh, I think the thing that makes me really proud today is that when I look back, I can say that there's a lot of people uh, that we, have, we worked with and we came in contact with 
And I, I hope I can say this uh, in a public forum confidently that I don't think there's anybody who can come back and tell me that I did wrong to them. I feel like I made a, we made a very major uh, uh, initiative over here uh, and a venture, if you will, with customers and employees and partners. And I feel like we did not do, we, we were very honest in our dealings. We dealt with things very, very transparently, very, very cleanly. Uh, made a lot of friends, made a very strong network as we went through this exercise. Uh, and I think, frankly, looking back at it, I think you, you hear that from a lot of people, right? It's one of those things when you look back, money becomes less important. I think it's actually definitely true for me here that to me, it's that, that stuff has become so much more valuable when I look back at Flux7. It's not the valuation. It's, it's the, I guess, the happy people, that I was, the people that I was able to make happy around me that matters. And employees who changed their careers as they grew in Flux7, who, folks who came in uh, with doing, you can say, uh, uh, $10 an hour job and then have walked out of Flux7 where they can claim a six-figure salary. That's what makes me really proud and makes me feel fulfilled. And, and I see that in everything that the entire sort of arc of your story from your relationship with Ali to your relationship with your customers or relationship with your investors, to ultimately your relationship with, with everybody that you touched through the business. It feels like you, you, you had a very uh, kind of honorable way that you approached everything. And it, it certainly is a, is, is a great story and um, a great, a great lesson. So I think that's really, really great of you to share. Artur, we're, I know we're going to want, people are going to want to reach out. So what, what, um, what would you say if, if people wanted to reach out to you? Are, are you open to LinkedIn connections or is there a website you want to point people to? Um, Actually, the best way LinkedIn, to reach you? LinkedIn is, would be the best way to do it right now. And, uh, and frankly, I think I would, I would say this more of a, uh, selfishly as well, which is that if any of the audience, I, I doubt, but if anyone does not have a LinkedIn account, well, A, I highly recommend it, and B, now would be the time to create it if you want to talk to me. So <laughs> I'll give you a second motivation to do it. <laughs> there you go. I think most of our guys have and gals have uh, have a LinkedIn account, but, uh, but in, in our tour spelled a little bit uniquely, I'll just spell it and then we'll put it in the show notes. A-A-T-E-R, Suleiman, S-U-L-E-M-A-N. Are you in that right, Artur? You, you absolutely got it right. And one of the beauties of my name, John, is that it's an equal opportunity name. There is no part of the world where it's easy to say or, say or spell. <laughs> you don't feel bad if you can't say it. There's literally no part of the world who can do it. And the other beauty is that it's such a unique name that I own, Arthur.com. That gives you, that gives you oh, five minutes that I own. And, uh, and if you just put my first name in Google, you will get to me. You don't even need to type a second name, which is insane. That's the beauty of <laughs> that is unique in these days. <laughs> well, Arthur. It's, it's, it's just a pleasure to meet you, and I, I appreciate you spending the time with us. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell, or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. 
Thanks for listening. 